Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. Hi, it's V. Have you considered professional talk therapy but had a good reason not to? Are you too busy? Try BetterHelp. Skip the drive and have your appointment wherever you happen to be. No waiting room. Your own couch. Do you dread wasting time on the wrong counselor? With BetterHelp, there's a broad range of expertise. And you can switch counselors to find a better match for free anytime. There's so many reasons to try BetterHelp. Ditch the excuses. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash snoozecast. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash snoozecast. Now, on to tonight's episode. social media, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters and by The Sinking Sun. Tonight, by Patreon supporter request, we'll read A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains, a travel book by Isabella Bird, describing her 1873 trip to the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. The book is a compilation of letters that Isabella Bird wrote to her sister, Henrietta. Women were infrequently found in the western United States of the late 19th century, and a middle-aged English lady traveling alone by horseback was quite a phenomenon. Bird 
was a 19th century British explorer, writer, photographer, and naturalist. From early on, Bird was frail and suffered from headaches and insomnia. Doctors recommended open air and exercise, so Bird learned to ride horseback. In 1873, at the age of 42, she covered over 800 miles in the Rocky Mountains on horseback, riding not side saddle like a lady, but frontwards like a man. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. Letter 1, Lake Tahoe, September 2nd. I have found a dream of beauty at which one might look all one's life and sigh. Not lovable like the Hawaiian Islands, but beautiful in its own way. A strictly North American beauty. Snow-splotched mountains, huge pines, redwoods, sugar pines, silver spruce. A crystalline atmosphere waves of the richest color, and a pine-hung lake which mirrors all beauty on its surface. Lake Tahoe is before me, a sheet of water 22 miles long by 10 broad, and in some places 1,700 feet deep. It lies at a height of 6,000 feet, and the snow-crowned summits which wall it in are from 8,000 to 11,000 feet in altitude. The air is keen and elastic. There is no sound but the distant and slightly musical ring of the lumberer's axe. It is a weariness to go back, even in thought, to the clang of San Francisco, which I left in its cold morning fog early yesterday, driving to the Oakland Ferry through streets with sidewalks heaped with thousands of cantaloupe and watermelons, tomatoes, cucumbers, squashes, pears, grapes, peaches, apricots, all of startling size as compared with any I ever saw before. Other streets were piled with sacks of flour, left out all night, owing to the security from rain at this season. I pass hastily over the early part of the journey the crossing, the bay, and the fog as chill as November, the number of lunch baskets 
which gave the car the look of conveying a great picnic party. The last view of the Pacific, on which I had looked for nearly a year. The fierce sunshine and brilliant sky inland. The look of long rainlessness, which one may not call drought. The valleys with sides crimson with the poison oak. The dusty vineyards with great purple clusters thick among the leaves. And between the vines, great dusty melons lying on the dusty earth. From off the boundless harvest fields, the grain was carried in June, and it is now stacked in sacks along the track, awaiting freightage. California is a land flowing with milk and honey. The barns are bursting with fullness. In the dusty orchards, the apple and pear branches are supported that they may not break down under the weight of fruit. Melons, tomatoes, and squashes of gigantic size lie almost unheeded on the ground. Fat cattle, gorged almost to repletion, shade themselves under the oaks. Superb red horses shine, not with grooming, but with condition. And thriving farms everywhere show on what a solid basis the prosperity of the golden state is founded. Very uninviting, however rich, was the blazing Sacramento Valley, and very repulsive the city of Sacramento, which, at a distance of 125 miles from the Pacific, has an elevation of only 30 feet. The mercury stood at 103 degrees in the shade, and the fine white dust was stifling. In the late afternoon, we began the ascent of the Sierras, whose saw-like points had been in sight for many miles. The dusty fertility was all left behind. The country became rocky and gravelly, and deeply scored by streams bearing the muddy wash of the mountain gold mines down to the muddier Sacramento. There were long, broken ridges and deep ravines, the ridges becoming longer, the ravines deeper, the pines thicker and larger as we ascended into a cool atmosphere of exquisite purity. And before 6 p.m., the last traces of cultivation and the last hardwood trees were left behind. At Colfax, a station at a height of 2,400 feet, I got out and walked the length 
of the train. First came two great gaudy engines, the grizzly bear and the white fox, with their respective tenders loaded with logs of wood, the engines with great, solitary, reflecting lamps in front above the cow guards, a quantity of polished brasswork, comfortable glass houses, and well-stuffed seats for the engine drivers. The engines and tenders were succeeded by a baggage car, the latter loaded with bullion and valuable parcels, and in charge of two express agents. Each of these cars is 45 feet long. Then came two cars loaded with peaches and grapes. Then two silver palace cars, each 60 feet long. Then a smoking car, at that time occupied mainly by Chinese laborers. And then five ordinary passenger cars with platforms like all the others, making altogether a train about 700 feet in length. The light of the sinking sun from that time glorified the Sierras, and as the dew fell, aromatic odors made the still air sweet. On a single track, sometimes carried on a narrow ledge excavated from the mountainside by men lowered from the top in baskets, overhanging ravines from 2,000 to 3,000 feet deep, the monster train snaked its way upwards, stopping sometimes in front of a few frame houses, at others where nothing was to be seen but a log cabin with a few Chinese laborers hanging around it, but where trails on the sides of the ravines pointed to a gold country above and below. So sharp and frequent are the curves on some parts of the ascent that on looking out of the window, one could seldom see more than a part of the train at once. At Cape Horn, where the track curves round the ledge of a precipice 2,500 feet in depth, it is correct to be frightened, and a fashion of holding the breath and shutting the eyes prevails. But my fears were reserved for the crossing of a trestle bridge over a very deep chasm, which is itself approached by a sharp curve. This bridge appeared to be overlapped by the cars so as to produce the effect of looking down directly into a wild gulch with a torrent raging along it at an immense depth below. Shivering in the keen, frosty air near the summit pass of the Sierras, we entered the snow sheds 
wooden galleries, which for about 50 miles shut out all the splendid views of the region as given in dioramas, not even allowing a glimpse of the gem of the Sierras, the lovely Donner Lake. One of these sheds is 27 miles long. In a few hours, the mercury had fallen from 103 degrees to 29 degrees, and we had ascended 6,987 feet in 105 miles. After passing through the sheds, we had several grand views of a pine forest on fire before reaching Truckee at 11 p.m., having traveled 258 miles. Truckee, the center of the lumbering region of the Sierras, is usually spoken of as a rough mountain town, and Mr. W. had told me that all the roughs of the district congregated there, that there were nightly pistol fights in bar rooms. But as he admitted that a lady was sure of respect, and Mr. G. strongly advised me to stay and see the lakes, I got out, much dazed and very stupid with sleep envying the people in the sleeping car who were already unconscious on their luxurious couches. The cars drew up in a street, if street that could be called, which was only a wide, cleared space intersected by rails, with here and there a stump in great piles of sawn logs bulking big in the moonlight, and a number of irregular clapboard, steep-roofed houses, many of them with open fronts, glaring with light and crowded with men. We had pulled up at the door of a rough western hotel with a partially open front, being a bar room crowded with men drinking and smoking, and the space between it and the cars was a moving mass of loafers and passengers. On the tracks, engines, tolling heavy bells were mightily moving the glare from their cyclopean eyes dulling the light of a forest which was burning fitfully on a mountainside. And on open spaces, great fires of pine logs were burning cheerily with groups of men round them. A band was playing noisily and the unholy sound of tom-toms was not far off. 
mountains, the Sierras of many a fireside dream seem to wall in the town, and great pines stood out, sharp and clear-cut, against a sky in which a moon and stars were shining frostily. It was a sharp frost at that great height, and when me and my carpet bag were deposited in a hotel lobby which answered for the parlor, I was glad to find some remains of pine knots still alight in the stove. A man came in and said that when the cars were gone, he would try to get me a room, but they were so full that it would be a very poor one. The crowd was solely masculine. It was then 11.30 p.m., and I had not had a meal since 6 a.m., but when I asked, hopefully, for a hot supper with tea, I was told that no supper could be got at that hour. But in half an hour, the same man returned with a small cup of cold, weak tea and a small slice of bread, which looked as if it had been much handled. I asked the clerk about the hire of horses, and presently a man came in from the bar who, he said, could supply my needs. This man, the very type of a western pioneer, bowed, threw himself into a rocking chair, drew a spittoon beside him, cut a fresh quid of tobacco, began to chew energetically, and put his feet cased in miry high boots into which his trousers were tucked on the top of the stove. He said he had horses which would both lope and trot, that some ladies preferred the Mexican saddle, that I could ride alone in perfect safety, and after a route had been devised, I hired a horse for two days. This man wore a pioneer's badge as one of the earliest settlers of California, but he had moved on as one place after another had become too civilized for him. But nothing, he added, was likely to change much in Truckee. I was afterwards told that the usual regular hours of sleep 
are not observed there. The accommodation is too limited for the population of 2,000, which is masculine mainly, and is liable to frequent temporary additions, and beds are occupied continuously, though by different occupants throughout the greater part of the 24 hours. Consequently, I found the bed and room allotted to me quite tumbled looking. Men's coats and sticks were hanging up. Boots were littered about. And a rifle was in one corner. There was no window to the outer air. But I slept soundly, being only once awoke by an increase of the same din in which I had fallen asleep, varied by three pistol shots fired in rapid succession. This morning, Trucky wore a totally different aspect. The crowds of the night before had disappeared. There were heaps of ashes where the fires had been. A sleepy German waiter seemed the only person about the premises. The open drinking saloons were nearly empty, and only a few sleepy-looking loafers hung about in what is called the street. It might have been Sunday, but they say that it brings a great accession of throng and jollity. Public worship had died out at present. Work is discontinued on Sunday, but the day is given up to pleasure. Putting a minimum of indispensables into a bag and slipping on my Hawaiian riding dress over a silk skirt and a dust cloak over all, I stealthily crossed the plaza to the livery stable, the largest building in Truckee, where twelve fine horses were stabled in stalls on each side of a broad drive. My friend of the evening showed me his rig, three velvet-covered side saddles, almost without horns. Some ladies, he said, 
used the horn of the Mexican saddle, but none in the part rode cavalier fashion. I felt abashed. I could not ride any distance in the conventional mode and was just going to give up this pleasant ravage when the man said, Ride your own fashion here at Truckee. If anywhere in the world, people can do as they like. Blissful Truckee. In no time, a large gray horse was rigged out in a handsome silver-bossed Mexican saddle with ornamental leather tassels hanging from the stirrup guards and a housing of black bear's skin. I strapped my silk skirt on the saddle, deposited my cloak in the corn bin, and was safely on the horse's back before his owner had time to devise any way of mounting me. Neither he nor any of the loafers who had assembled showed the slightest sign of astonishment, but all were as respectful as possible. Once on horseback, my embarrassment disappeared, and I rode through Truckee, whose irregular, steep-roofed houses and shanties set down in a clearing and surrounded closely by mountain and forest, looked like a temporary encampment, passed under the Pacific Railroad, and then for 12 miles followed the windings of the Truckee River, a clear, rushing, mountain stream in which immense pine logs had gone aground, not to be floated off till the next freshet, a loud-tongued, rollicking stream of ice-cold water on whose banks no ferns or trailers hang and which leaves no greenness along its turbulent progress. All was bright with that brilliancy of sky and atmosphere, that blaze of sunshine and universal glitter, which I never saw till I came to California, combined with an elasticity in the air which removed all lassitude and gives one strength and spirit enough for anything. <laughs>